He is a good Father. He's a perfect Father who loves us with a deep, deep love. And we live in and experience and grow in that love by sharing things in common with Him, with our Heavenly Father. Whether that's His creation, what He has made and enjoying that with Him, or really anything that is true, good, and beautiful. Now most of all, the Father loves the Son and the Holy Spirit, and He wants us to share fully in that relationship as well. Now, all of those characteristics about God and who He is can be summed up with the word holiness. God is holy, and He's good and right in His ways. And holiness means being set apart for God. And that means relationally set apart for God. Loving the things that He does, sharing them in common, and and abstaining from the things that He doesn't love that work in opposition to that relationship and that love. The Corinthians, as we've been learning, were struggling in their relationship with Paul, we know, and his team. But at the heart of that struggle was really a struggle with God Himself. So we're going to see in this section of Scripture where Paul's been talking about the Corinthians reconciling with him and his team. We learned last week where he says, open up your heart. Our hearts are wide open. Open your hearts as well. Um, He says that, and then he launches into this section today. And then at the end of the section, picking up uh, next week, you'll see him once again say, open your hearts to us. So, wedged between these statements on having open hearts is this call to walk in holiness. And Paul understands that the root of the problem with the Corinthians wasn't so much their conflict with him and his team, but with God Himself. That they had wandered and and there was a distance with God. And what Paul is seeking to do is to eliminate that distance and draw them back. And I believe that's what God wants to do through His Word and through this section of Scripture. He wants to do the same thing in our lives. We all can wander, and some of us might, not, might right now be wandering from Him. And He calls us back. So this Scripture is going to teach us about that call and why we should come back. So let's pray, and then we'll read God's Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for Your love for us. We thank You for Your glory and Your excellent ways. And I pray, God, through being in Your Word and in the power of You, Holy Spirit, we would hear Your call to come and draw near to You and to walk with You. Help me to explain and proclaim Your Word well. And Lord, speak to us through it all, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Follow along with me from uh, Romans, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and following. It says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make My dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be My people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 
This passage here teaches us that if we want to be close to God and enjoy all the blessings of living in Him, we must separate from the things that draw our hearts away from Him and uh, would call us to embrace false gods and instead pursue His way of living. So let's learn about this as we go through about drawing near to God. So, point number one, we draw near to God by not being unequally yoked. Verse 14, Chapter 6, it says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. It's so important to understand this first sentence here and what's being said. Uh, There have been lots of mistakes actually made in the interpretation and even application of this sentence. It's important to get it clear in our minds and then walk in right application. So I want to take time just to look at that and what it means. Well, Paul is using a metaphor here. Uh, Do not be unequally yoked. A yoke is a, uh, an instrument that you put on the necks of animals to pull a plow. So do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And it's likely that he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 22, uh, where it says, You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Now, I'm not a farmer, uh, and I don't know all the ins and outs of what would happen if you put an ox and a donkey together, but I think a lot of it's kind of obvious. They are two very different animals. Uh, They have different strengths, different temperaments, different sizes, different eating habits, and so forth. And and if you put them together to plow, uh, it's not going to work. Actually, you can use two donkeys and you can use two oxen, but you can't put a donkey and an ox together really successfully. I imagine it would result in some sort of problem, not only not plowing well, but even injuring an animal and maybe ruining an animal for future use. And so Paul is saying, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Quoting likely from Deuteronomy 22, verse 10, where it says, don't do this. Don't put an ox and a donkey together. Now, often in Scripture, uh, in the law of God, there are principles and they are immediately applicable in the literal, straightforward way. Um, Of course, this means don't put an ox with a donkey. But there are also principles that can be illustrated in Scripture. And you'll find the New Testament authors at times... um, applying the principle from something in Scripture. So that's what's going on here. Paul is taking this this command that is exact and literal and applying the principle to the Corinthians. The Corinthians have been experiencing trouble with this idea. And it's behind their wandering away from God and their wandering away from Paul and his team. So Paul's going right after the problem. They keep forgetting that they are new creations in Christ. They are no longer like they used to be. They are no longer to think and to act and to live according to the old ways, the ways of the world. Yet they're immersed in a society that is very different from the ways of the Lord. And by the way, uh, very different from us in, in certain key ways. Very similar in many ways, but also different. They're in a society that is heavily influenced by polytheism and state control. And so everybody just about except for the, the Jews, um, would worship multiple gods and goddesses. And everybody would see the emperor as a demigod, essentially, that you need to worship in some way. You need to bow before the state and the emperor, the god behind the state. And so, that's how they live. They are worshiping multiple gods, be they Roman or Greek or Egyptian gods, and they're worshiping the emperor. And that religious idea... That worldview permeates everything. And in their day, uh, if you wanted to go out to eat 
with friends, if you wanted to have a meal with friends, you likely couldn't do it in your home because most people couldn't afford homes that were large enough to have a large dining area. It was only wealthy people. And so you'll see, actually, you see evidence of this in the New Testament, churches meeting at homes that was usually the home of a wealthy patron. And so most people, you just didn't have a large dining area. You would just kind of eat wherever, outside, around, around the house, around the kitchen. You didn't have a large dining area. So if you wanted to eat with friends, you would go out to dinner with them, and they didn't have Longhorns or Applebee's or Kruger's or anything like that. Well, they did. It was in the local, the local temple. So the temples had these dining areas, basically. And they were attached to the temples. And it was very common for people to go there and to eat together. And, and also, if you were in a trade, you were, in a, uh, you were part of a trade guild, and they would do the same things. They would be devoted to local gods or goddesses. And they would have their buildings and they would have their meals together. So the social life of Corinth and, and mo- most of the Roman Empire, that world at the time, was built around all this. And so if you wanted to go have a, a good meal with friends, it meant going into the temple and the meat that was given to that meal was actively sacrificed to that local god or goddess. And the meal itself would have been built around worship of that god or goddess. And there were behaviors that went with all that as well because they followed these local gods and goddesses and demigods. And if you know anything about ancient mythology, their behavior of the demigods was pretty bad. Well, the people who followed them mirrored that behavior. And so these gatherings would would, include just carousing, uh, over-the-top drinking, and orgies and things like that. That was part of the society. And if you were in that society, that was normal behavior. And so the Corinthians lived in the midst of that. And Paul's trying to get at this problem of thinking that they could somehow still be close to their friends in these practices. That they could be a Christian and yet still go to the temple. They could be a Christian and still go to these meals and, and participate and you know, maybe abstain from some of the worst things, but you know, be there for the, for the actual worship part because you know, they're not... They're not real gods. They're false gods. So we can do this. And Paul is going after this because this this yoking together in this way is destructive to their relationship with God. It's contrary to their relationship with God. And so they're not to relate to their neighbors in this unqualified, unrestricted way. They're not to participate fully in the spiritual values and practices of the culture. In the idolatry that's there. You cannot worship Apollo and Jesus at the same time. That's what Paul's getting after. Instead, they've been called to a new life that's radically different. A life of depending on the the true God who came in the flesh, died on the cross for our sins, rose again on the third day, walks with us and calls us to a, a life mirroring His life, a life of truth and love and following God in His glorious ways. Now, it's important to understand what Paul is not saying here, and this is where the mistakes have been made. He's not saying, stop hanging out with your friends who don't follow Jesus. He's not saying that. He's not saying, cut off your relationships with these people. If they do evil things, don't even associate with them. He's not saying that. He makes that clear multiple places. And Jesus Himself, we know, hung out with such people. Matthew chapter 11, it says the Son of Man came eating and drinking. They say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus hung out with people who were not yet following God. Paul expects them to still eat with their friends, actually. He says it in 1 Corinthians 10 as he's addressing this very issue. He says, chapter 10, verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, so here's the situation, all right, in certain contexts, wouldn't be inside the temple, would be in a home, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. So don't participate in the active worship of, of idols. You can eat the meat. Everything belongs to God. And you can go over their houses. Please do go over their houses as they invite you and eat with them. We're told to be aggressively involved with the world. To love people. To model the, the truth and love of Christ. Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people alight a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, being unequally yoked doesn't mean having friendships with people who don't know Jesus. It means not forming deep alliances with them in their particular uh, godless worldviews. But to love people and to connect with people and to care for them. It's not holiness to separate yourself from the world in this way. In a way of building friendships and being a light and salt. It's not holiness. It's holiness to separate yourself in the worship of the world and thinking that you can somehow worship false gods and God at the same time. But it's not holiness to separate yourself. It's actually unholiness. If you want to be holy, love people who don't yet know Jesus. Build relationships with them. Because who modeled that so well? Simple answer. Jesus. Jesus is the picture of perfect holiness. Look at His life and how He engaged people. So I want you to understand this, and we'll get more into the section so we can work out the details more, but I want us to avoid the problems on maybe the right side here. It's a, there's a path of understanding obedience here, and there's mire on the right and swamp on the left. Let's try not to go into either. So the right side is the idea that somehow holiness means I pull out of culture in every way. I pull out of these relationships. No, that's not what's being said here. And sometimes those mistakes can be even silly. Recently learned of a church that would not send their pastor to a conference hosted by Pastor John MacArthur, a great Bible teacher. And they wouldn't go to this conference hosted by the pastor, John MacArthur, not because John MacArthur believed or did anything wrong, but he associated with a guy named Al Mohler from Southern Seminary. But it wasn't because Al Mohler believed or did anything wrong either. It was because he associated with a guy named Billy Graham. And it wasn't because Billy Graham believed or did anything wrong, but he associated with the Pope. And the Pope was the Antichrist. So therefore, you couldn't go to Pastor John MacArthur's church. That's the, the wrong doctrine of separation from this passage and others applied. And it's, it's four degrees of separation. It's ridiculous. But it goes on. And so I want us to not even do the first degree. Yes, the first degree in terms of what we see in this passage. Indeed, that's, that's part of holiness. Part of loving people. We love them better actually by not going to their temples to worship with them. And we love them better by drawing the line at some point and saying, hey, I'm your friend, but that is over the line. I wouldn't be your true friend if I endorsed that part of your worldview. 
but we love them by being in their lives like Jesus was. So, we draw near to God by not being unequally yoked. Let's talk about the errors on the left side by moving to the next point. We draw near to God because we are the temple of the living God. Here Paul goes on to talk about this. He says, For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. We draw near to God because we are the temple of the living God. Paul uses a list of five contrasts. Righteousness and lawlessness, light and darkness, Christ and Belial, believers and unbelievers, temple of God and idolatry, and five particular words here um, partnership, fellowship, accord, portion, and agreement. Those five words are important to understand. Paul's not saying, What does a believer and unbeliever have in common, expecting you to say nothing? Because that's the expectation of all these questions is nothing. They don't have partnership. But it's not what do they have in common. And that's we could mistranslate it. And we could think there's nothing in common between believers and unbelievers. That's not true. There's loads in common. We're all made in the image of God. God loves all people. He, he's given them gifts. There's goodness that God works in and through others. It's not the goodness of devotion to the Lord and love, pure love for Him. But there is a goodness there. There's, there's tons we have in common. We have culture in common. Lots of good things. So it's not saying that. These five words actually are words that, that meant something slightly different than maybe what we would understand in that day. They're all words that are almost legal words. They're words of formal agreement and partnership. That's what they are. They're, they're words like, they, for us maybe we would words, use words like covenant, union, heartfelt alliance, marriage, or a contract. And so when Paul's saying is, is what formal agreement do you, does Christ and Belial have together? What heartfelt alliance at the deepest level does a believer have with an unbeliever? That's what he's after here. And he's trying to say that, guys, there's, there's a connection at the heart level that, that will never happen between you as the people of God, the temple of God, and idolatry. You'll never be able to connect there. And so even if you go and you participate, it's just so contrary to believing in following God. It makes no sense. There's no connection here. It's only going to be destructive and harmful to you and to them. He's after their hearts that they would draw near to God by recognizing who they are and abstaining from trying to be who they're not. And rejecting God and, and turning the other way to these false truths. Now, in some ways, it may be hard for us to relate because we, we can go to Longhorn and you don't have to like, you know, bow down to, to Athena or something like that to eat your meal. Um, and we just don't have these things. Now, we are becoming more pluralistic. We are already pluralistic. And it may happen in, in, within our lifetime that that is indeed what goes on if you want to go to certain places. Um, and, and we're seeing society shift and society be more militant about these things. That if you don't believe actively what I believe, then I will have nothing to do with you. And so the lines are being drawn in ways that we have to decide how we're going to live and how we're going to worship and what, where do we draw the line. Um, 
there are, there are things that are out there that we just have to exercise wisdom with in these things. So, I mean, there's lots of applications I could think of. I think of, uh, for instance, certain medical practices and holistic medicine. There's lots of good things there, but there's just a side of there that's way off in Eastern religion stuff. And so we have to decide, you know, do I, do I go to that guy? Because that's what's going on. That's what, how he's seen my participation in these practices. And so I have to draw the line. Uh, yoga. Yoga can become way more than stretching and feeling better. Um, it can become, there's yoga at the level of deep Hindu beliefs. So those are some more direct ways, but it could also be just being part of a social club where the, the heart of that social club is not to do good. There's lots of good social clubs out there, lots of community organizations, by the way. I encourage you to join and be a part of. So you can do good in Christ's name. There's many that do much good. But there's some that it's just, you know, it, it's just a drinking and carousing club. And so you have to say, well, I'm just not going to do that. And even though I used to be part of that club, I'm going to leave it now. I'm going to even maybe hurt some relationships, and I'm going to do my best and let them know I love you guys. I still want to be involved, but I just, you know, I can't go there because that's all we do is drink and drink. Those are some applications here. I think also one application here uh, is, is the area of marriage. Now, Paul's not addressing marriage per se in this section. He addresses it elsewhere in Scripture. But I think marriage is a heartfelt alliance. At least it ought to be. And, and if you're going to connect two people who one is following Jesus, one is not, it's going to be a problem. Because it's an alliance at the deepest level. And it's going to be an unequal yoking. And that's why I believe Scripture encourages us to marry believers and never says anything, ever, positive about pursuing marriage outside of marrying a believer. Because you're going to be unequally yoked. If they're following something besides Jesus and you're following Jesus, it's just going to be hard. It may be really hard. It's at least going to be just wearing on you because every time you want to do certain things, there's going to be a different motivation in your spouse. Now, I want you to know if you're already married to someone who's not following Jesus and you're following Jesus and maybe it happened after you got married or maybe you didn't know these things and you went ahead and got married, Scripture honors your marriage now. God is for your marriage now. And there's promises for you. There's promise of blessing on you and your family from God in Scripture. Um, I want you to know that. That's 1 Corinthians 7 and elsewhere. So this blessing, and you should continue, and you should give all your, your energies to love your spouse and love your children, trusting that God is in it. But Scripture never says to enter into that knowingly. And that would be forming a, a partnership at a deep level that's just not going to work. It's just going to be difficult. It's going to work against you following the Lord. We're indeed to deeply respect and love others but don't, that don't know Jesus, that don't follow Jesus, but don't marry them. There's a difference. We can be in their lives. We can be good friends. But marriage is another level. And so I just want to say that. I want to say to, to young people and older people too, just don't be deceived in that area. Don't even let your heart take those first steps, I would say. You know, it's not, that's not, ultimately it's, it's wrong when you decide to make the covenant, but don't even let your heart begin to move in that direction. Guard your heart. I know it can be painful. And you might have lots of hope for that relationship, but in the end, uh, God says no, and you're going to end up trying to put an ox and a donkey together, and it's not going to work. Third point. We draw near to God by pursuing holiness. 
the latter part of this, verse 16 and following, um, is just full of promise. It's jam-packed with promise, actually. And I think it's so important to, to get this because if, if this sort of behavior of abstaining from things and pursuing the things of God is not motivated by these promises, it's just not going to work for you. If it's motivated because you're, just, you're fearful of making bad choices, that's not going to sustain you. If you know you just are supposed to do these things, that's not going to sustain you. If you're foregoing the pleasures of, of the world because you're afraid of letting others down, that's not going to sustain you. Now, those might be sufficient motives to get you to the next day. I'm not saying don't obey if that's your only motive. I'm just saying you've got to have something bigger and stronger and better than that. And that's what Paul's presenting in this section. Something bigger and better and, and stronger. Actually, the strongest motivation for holiness is captured here in this section of Scripture. Because there are amazing promises. The most amazing promises you could ever imagine are here. And they're promises for you and each and every one who would trust in Jesus, put their faith in Jesus. If you've simply turned away from your sin and, and, and your self-righteousness and self-determination to say, Jesus, I, I need Your forgiveness. I need Your death on the cross to pay for my sins. I need the power of Your resurrection. So I receive You. I turn from those things. Then you have an amazing promise that is Yours. He is for you. And these promises are meant for you and they're here contained in this section. They're better than anything. So first, the promise is, verse 16, I will make My dwelling among them and walk among them. So Paul is pointing to the Old Testament promises for the people of God as ultimately fulfilled in the New Testament, ultimately fulfilled in God's people. Because now we are the temple of God. And God was speaking of the temple and the tabernacle in this original verse here. And he was saying that I'm going to come and I'm going to dwell in this tent in the middle of you. I'm going to be right with you. You're going to be surrounded that I myself will dwell with you and I'll walk with you. I won't just be stationary there, but I'll be actively walking with you. I'll be with you through the ups and downs of life. I'll be with you through all time. I'll be with you, Jesus said, to the end of the age. I will be with you. So it's a promise of God Himself. And so there's the promise of His presence and His walking with us and walking with us through life. But we have to understand that what makes us special is not just that He's with us, but that He's God. This is God, the Creator of all things. The One who rules and reigns over all things. Has infinite power. Does whatever He pleases. Who has given His very Son for us to be forgiven and to enter into His family, to be close to Him, to draw on His strength. He works all things for our good. So in being with us and walking with us, He's, he's using things, even hard things, for our good. He, he promises this amazing relationship with us. That is the most amazing and precious thing in all of creation. There is nothing better. There is no experience. There is no thing you can own. There is nothing you could have or ever encounter that's greater than God Himself and greater than knowing Him and being called His son or daughter. And so that's the promise here. The promise of, of God Himself dwelling with us and walking with us and then being counted as His people. So He says, uh, he says I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to Me. Paul's drawing from a number of uh, three different Old Testament sections that speak of these things. He's applying it to the Corinthians because it's true for them, because we are the fulfillment of these things. And so God says, I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters. 
You will, you will belong to me and my family permanently and we will walk together and I will welcome you as you turn away from these things, as you turn away from idols, as you separate yourself from false worship and false worldviews. You will experience me. That's the greatest motivator for holiness right there. God Himself. What do you get when you pursue holiness? You get God. It's who He is. He's holy. He's good. He, he stands for what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful. As, as philosophers say, things that are, are ultimate true, they're true, they're good, and they're beautiful. They're, uh, the things of God are true, they're good, and they're glorious. He's for those things. And He's opposed to anything that undermines those things. So this isn't like just kind of silly rules and stuff. This is about what's ultimately glorious and good. God Himself and His ways. And this is the highest promise. And this must be why we pursue holiness. Just think about it. Step back and think about this. What, what, what would it mean to belong to a family, say, where the, the patriarch, the father, maybe the grandfather or whatever of that family was always, always and only morally upright and good? And everything. What would, it, what would it mean just to be part of a family like that? Where the, the patriarch, kind of the, the main influencer in the family, was always just morally upright and good and did everything. He was the guy that kind of influenced and led the family. What would it be like? What if everything he said was true and good and kind of like lifted your spirits? Like, wow, I never thought of that. Whatever it might have been about. You know, maybe he's just talking about the moon. And it's like, wow, I never thought of the moon like that. Or maybe he's just talking about, you know, ethics. It's like, wow, I never thought of that idea of the doing good to my neighbor and why we do it and all that. What would it be like to, to know someone like to have them as your patriarch? What, what if that person also was just amazingly loving? You knew uh, he loved you and loved the family and he was willing to and had sacrificed his very greatest treasures for the family and for you to rescue people from harm. What also, what would it be like also now to add all those qualities, right? all those moral qualities, now he's also the richest man, the most powerful man in the world. And he's your grandfather, your father, whatever. What would it be like to be part of that family? What if he was also the most interesting and deepest and thoughtful and most enjoyable person you've ever met? And so all, things, all those things are yours. It sounds like fantasy, doesn't it? But what if it were true? And what if it never ended? Would it be worth sacrificing things? Would it be worth turning away from things that are opposed to that patriarch and that family? Well, it is true. And that's what this passage is about. These things are ours, and God is our Father in this way, and He is all these things and more. And so, holiness matters. Because God matters. And these things matter. And in Abstaining from the things that take us away from Him and are opposed to Him matters. And pursuing Him matters. Now you might be thinking, okay, now I've heard you talk a lot about grace. And if I heard you right, you said it's a free gift to be forgiven and included in the family through faith. Simple faith. Right? So why do we need to worry about holiness? Right? I mean, are you saying that I need to be good enough now? Are you, is this a mixed message? Like, first it's grace, it's free, and now it's like, I gotta 
earn my way into the family? Is that what you're saying? No, it's not. That's not what's going on here. It's a good question. Very good question. And, and it's a question that Christians wrestle with and, and we need to get this right. First, I think what Paul's saying simply is, no, it's not about earning your way in. It's simply what? Who you are. Verse 16, right in the middle, right? says, for we are the temple of the living God. This is who you are. You're a new creation in Jesus. When you believed in Him, something powerful happened. The Holy Spirit came and created new life in you. Now, you might not have felt it or known it at the time, but it happened. And you're a new creation. And there's something in you. There's a love for God in you. And there's a love for others in His name that's in you. Now, it might be weak and it might be really small at times, but it's there. And you're not the same. And you'll never, ever be the same again. It's who you are. And so it makes no sense to try to be two different things that are opposed to each other. The sooner you realize who you are and get on the business of being you, the better. That's what Paul's saying. And that's one of the bases here for holiness. It's just simply who you are. And the sooner you get this, the better. The sooner you get, the happier you'll be. I I remember sitting with a, a friend years ago who was a believer from what I know at the time and, and later. And somehow, something had happened. She was a, a single woman and, and dealt with the loneliness that can come with that. Loneliness comes no matter what. But it can come with a, in a particular way when you're single. And I think what happened in that, she started to believe some lies and there was an attractive man, married man, who basically, uh, they, she moved in with him. And so she was living with a married man as a believer. And so we as a church loved her enough to confront. And I remember sitting there and just saying, what are you going to do? Because you're never going to be happy. You can do this thing, but if you belong to Him, you're never going to be happy. You'll never be happy. And thankfully for her, she recognized that. And she repented and came back. And she's doing great. And that's, that's the truth here. You are the temple of the living God. So don't mess around with not being that. Live according to who you are. It's far better. Secondly, there's a, an experience of intimacy with the Lord that comes to us when we pursue holiness. We're in the family. If you believe in Jesus, and you've, you've put your faith in Him, you've turned, and you've experienced new life, you are in the family. You'll always be in that family. But your experience of intimacy with the Lord is related to holiness. You can choose to always be wandering and always dealing with things and always struggling and in a cycle of sinning and repenting your whole life and you'll never have the level of intimacy God wants for you. He wants you to just be done with that stuff. Just stop doing those things. It's not who you are. Come back to me and learn what it is to be close to me. It takes effort indeed to say no, but it's worth saying no and yes to who you are. So the Scriptures say, Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If you want to see the Lord, if you want to encounter Him and know Him in a real way, it's through holiness. Matthew 5, 8, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. There's a reality in John chapter 15, the abiding that Jesus speaks of is to believers. And He basically says, do this and you'll walk in intimacy and fruitfulness. And that's the second reason why. We have all these promises. They're ours now. So, 
Let's cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God, as Paul says. Let's not dabble in stuff that defile our devotion and experience of intimacy with God. We don't pursue the things that the world worships. We trust in God. And we draw the line even if it means being unpopular or persecuted. It's about our hearts, ultimately. Now, there are real ways that this works itself out, but we must be careful that we don't get the cart ahead of the horse. It's about our hearts. It's about our hearts being close to the Lord. Now, that's going to work itself out in real ways. So, it's, it's not about what you wear. It's not about the clothes you wear or the styles you wear. It's about your heart. It's not about the language you use, but it's about the, your heart. But if your heart is to be a worshiper of God, and depend on Him and love others in His name, you will make choices in what you wear that honor God and bless others. You will make choices in what you say that edify others and bring glory to God. The heart leads to behavior. It's not the other way around. So we don't measure holiness by whether you wear this or that because those standards may vary by culture and so forth. But there will be real ways you work that out indeed. It's not about the foods you eat or the substances you avoid but about the heart. But if you have a heart to be close to God and to walk in His ways, you will make choices in what you eat and the substances you enjoy in such a way that you will grow your love for God and your, your blessing to others. It's not about how much money you give or what sort of job you have, but about your heart and therefore how you use your finances and gifts to pursue love for God and, those, and others. All of this, the goal is walking with God. Depending on Him. Living in Him and loving others in His name. Just as I started in referencing my dad, we enjoyed a close relationship because we shared things in common. God is holy. He's good. He's only good. He's a God of truth. He's glorious. And so if we want to be close to Him, we walk in these things together. We walk in holiness. We abstain from those things that are opposed to Him and walk in holiness. I want to close with just a story real quick. I have a friend, not in this church, uh, that got this truth. He was a man who he had a, a wonderful wife and family and a good job, but somewhere along the way, he had got off course and the powerful allure of pornography had gripped his life and he became consumed by it in the endless cycles of temptation and obsession and gratification. And as a result, his marriage and his family was a mess. He was in danger of being consumed by it, but he came to his senses and he realized this truth. There's something far better than the falsehood of this thing. And he repented and he got the help that he needed, confessed his sin, walked it out in accountability, and began to live the life he was called to live. And so when I met him, he was already past these things. He was loving his wife, dedicated to his children and his job and the Lord, and he was involved with Alpha actually. He was a man who was glowing with joy and being used by God to lead hundreds of people to Christ as a result. That's a picture of what Paul is pleading for with the Corinthians. It's what God would call us to as well. So let me close with this. What in your life is pulling you away from God? What in your life is pulling you away from God? What is opposed to the things of God? What is that thing? Maybe it's something with your language. Maybe it's something with substances. Maybe it's pornography. 
It could be all different levels of it, but what, what's pulling you away from God? And I just encourage you to come before the Lord, particularly as we get ready to celebrate communion. Come before the Lord. Confess that. By His grace, say, Lord, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to be close to You. I want to be close to You. Heal me. Help me. And use me. He's the only thing, the only one that is truly worth it. Everything. We have these wonderful promises that are ours. It is who we are. So let's make that choice now. And um, just take a minute. I want to take a minute right now just to go before the Lord. Um, maybe the ushers could come forward too. And uh, as we prepare to transition to communion, I want us to prepare our hearts for communion because communion.